dogs give birth to puppies, cats give birth to kittens, and human beings give birth to human babies. You would never expect a dog to give birth to a cat. But imagine a world where animals gave birth to other random animals. So one day a dog would give birth to a cat, and then next time it would be an elephant, or next time it'd be a giraffe. Uh, that might be kind of fun if you want random pets for animals, but, but it would probably drive you crazy after a while because you never know what to expect. It would result in lots of confusion and chaos. We know that would never happen. If you know some basic biology, you know that every single living cell and every organism has this special molecule called DNA. DNA. DNA contains genetic that is unique for every single species. So you have dogs that have dog DNA, and cats have cat DNA, and human beings have human DNA. And it's fascinating how God designed this. Uh, DNA comes in the form of two strands. They're twisted around each other like a double helix, like a spiral staircase. And each step contains one piece of genetic code. Human beings have three billion pieces of genetic code in, in each of our DNA. And this has all the code that makes you, you, and the code that makes me, me. The things that determine uh, what, what, what we might think is trivial, like hair color and eye color, that's coded in our G- DNA, but bigger things as well, like your gender. This code is programmed in each of us when life begins at conception. And DNA determines who we are, our identity. And in the same way, if you've been born again, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have a God-given spiritual identity. You're a new creation where you have a spiritual DNA, the DNA of Christ who defi- that defines who you are. And confusion and chaos happens when you go against your DNA, when you go against who you are. Morning, I'm going to focus on two aspects of our identity in Christ. These things are more basic than even our hair color or gender, and that's the fact that we are forgiven and loved. And this reality, this identity of being forgiven and loved, makes us a new creation and takes us into a new way of living as a result. And we see in today's passage that those who have experienced God's forgiveness and love can't help but give that same kind of forgiveness and love to other people. Those who experience God's forgiveness and love can't help forgive and love other people as a result. So forgiveness and love define who we are. It's what we do. God's forgiven people can't help but forgive other people as God has forgiven us. And God's beloved children We can't help but love other people as God has poured out his love in each one of us. And a lot of problems can happen if we deny our identity. If a dog gives birth to an elephant, that would be a problem. We would would immediately recognize that something is wrong, that something isn't right. And our failure to live out our identity as a new creation in Christ would mean something is wrong. It could mean, number one, that maybe we're just a faker, that we're pretenders. Maybe we call ourselves Christians, but then our lives contradict who Christ is. Or it can mean we're confused, and we just need to get back on track and and live out the identity that God has called us to. 
before we go any further, I want to remind us of our context in Ephesians chapter 4, because it's so important to know our identity. Because if you lose your identity, you lose who you are. We've been talking about recreation. The fact that a radical change happens when someone becomes a Christian, when someone decides to follow Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Christians, as we have seen the last couple of weeks, are people who put off certain things and put on other things as a result. The old self is what we put off. We put off the old self that is corrupted through sinful desires, that's lured away by the world and the devil. And in contrast, we, the new self is what we put on. We put on the new self that's created in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Originally, when God created humanity, the image of God was created good because everything God made is good. However, however, when sin entered the world, the image of God became corrupted. And you don't have to look far to realize how messed up things are because this world is a messed up place because it's filled with messed up people like you and me and everybody else. But Jesus Christ came to restore humanity to its true form. If you want to see what the image of God was intended to be, what God had designed it to be, you only have to look at Jesus Christ. You only have to look at the attitudes and actions of Jesus Christ, how he loved God and loved neighbor, and how he treated the poor and the outcast. You look at Jesus and you know this is what humanity was created to be. Last week, Andy talked about how living the Christian life your way is not living the Christian life at all, that we are created to be new image bearers just like Jesus Christ. And so there are certain things we have to stop, certain things we have to start, certain things we put off, certain things we put on. We have to stop sinful anger and start loving other people. We have to stop stealing and start working and giving generously. We have to stop the rotten speech and start speaking the truth in love. And whenever we give in to our old self, our old nature, our old way of life, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It denies and contradicts the fact that we are a new creation in Christ, that we have a new identity and a new spiritual DNA. Some of you undoubtedly here have a child or a brother or a sister or maybe even a family member that's done some things that are really regrettable, that are things that you wish could be undone. Maybe they got in trouble with the law or got arrested or maybe they're even spending time in prison. And you just want to go up to them and say, this is not who you are. This is not what, what our family is about. And it grieves you that someone in your family would do something like that because it brings shame and dishonor to the family and the family name. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is grieved when we who bear the name of Christ as Christian, Christians do things that dishonor the name of Christ and dishonor the name of God. And so today, our focus is going to be on and anger and unforgiveness, ways that the old self can come back to harm. Look with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. These things broadly fall under the umbrella of sinful anger. And I'm going to just take a moment to walk through some of these terms because when I was preparing for this message, I was 
looking at a word like clamor. What does that mean? And I'll scratch in my head. So we're going to just take a moment to walk through these things. Uh, bitterness is the root of resentment that grows up into hatred. Wrath and anger is the emotional response we feel when something's unjust, when something is not right. And we know that not all anger is wrong. Uh, Jesus himself got angry at the money changers and merchants who were corrupting God's temple. It's easy for us to feel angry when we've been mistreated or others we love have been mistreated or when we're a victim. But it's even easier for that anger to grow into a deadly cancer. Clamor is another word for angry outbursts, that shrieking and screaming that happens when we become so frustrated and so upset. Slander is rotten speech, the speech that's designed to destroy someone's character or reputation. Slander also comes in the form of abusive language or cursing. And finally, malice is another word for evil, and it's just a summary of everything that comes before. Malice can come on the inside where, where we see bitterness, wrath, and anger that stews until it boils over. But malice can also be shown on the outside where, where we give in to those desires, and it comes out in the form of clamor, those angry outbursts and slander. And we don't have to look far to see bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. I mean, if you've been following the presidential campaign at all, I mean, we, we, we are seeing this played out all over the media. You see grown men bullying each other. You see candidates attacking one another and accusing one another of terrible things. You see one candidate trashing and say, that candidate is not competent and not fit for the White House. And at campaign rallies, you even see supporters and demonstrators assault each other. And on one level, it's shocking because we expect more out of people who would be our future leaders, right? But on the other hand, it shouldn't be that shocking because if you look at what's going on in the presidential campaign, it's, it's who we are. It's who every person is apart from the saving grace and mercy of Christ that changes us. What we see going on in the campaign is really the old self, the old man, that old way of life that's, that's on full display. But we ourselves are confronted with opportunities day by day for that old self to come back, for that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice to be exercised in our own lives. And that we're tempted whenever we're dealing with an unreasonable boss, right? Or we're tempted to those things when uh, we're, we're dealing with a tired or hungry child or spouse, and they just seem so irritable and unreasonable. We can be tempted when a friend just lets us down and just seems so unreliable. We can be tempted when a, a pastor just doesn't seem that responsive or care about something that's important to you. And it can happen when someone in your care group says something that's inconsiderate, clueless, and it, and it really hurts you. And of course, it can happen when someone attacks you, either physically, emotionally, or even verbally. And we can let that root of bitterness begin to settle into our hearts, and, and that anger can begin to fester, and it can eat you up like a forest fire during a drought. One writer put it this way regarding bitterness within our hearts. 
to lick your wounds, to smack our lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. It may feel good at the time when you're offended, when you're hurt, when you're sinned against, to give in to that bitterness and anger. It may feel satisfying. It may feel like a feast. But as we indulge in that, we're really wolfing down ourselves. The skeleton at the feast is you. But that's not our DNA. That's not who we are. That bitterness and that anger, that's not who you are in Christ. We are called to put those things away because our true identity is the complete opposite of all those things. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, oftentimes I, I wish we could just shut off any bitterness or anger before it comes up. That, you know, back in the back of our room, there could be some kind of light switch or, or anger or bitterness switch where we, if, if that anger or bitterness is coming, we would just turn it off and it would be gone and we could forget about it. Or maybe even better, like a circuit breaker that, you know, automatically trips when anger gets too hot and the fire is prevented and the house doesn't get burned down. But it doesn't work like that. Sanctification is spirit-enabled effort. We have to choose to put off certain things and choose to put on other things as a result. One helpful when that anger rises is to learn how to redirect it. And I think... uh, The theologian John Calvin has some helpful thoughts on this. And so at the moment that the anger rises, when that boss or neighbor or family hurts or offends us, let's pause and let's consider that the very things other people do to offend us are the same kinds of things we do to offend other people. Let's look at what John Calvin has to say. Each one of us must learn to turn his anger against himself and to see his need to be careful seeing that there are many vices in himself similar to those that he condemns in his neighbors. For this self-love of ours so blinds us that we make the smallest faults in the world to be heinous and unpardonable sins. Church, where do we need to learn how to turn our anger against ourselves? Where do we need to realize that The things that others do to offend us and hurt us are the similar kinds of things that we do ourselves to offend other people. And where are we tempted to take the small faults of others and and raise them to unpardonable sins? As we consider the faults of other people and how we want to respond as new creation in Christ with a new spiritual identity, with our new DNA, our pride is going to be right there. Your pride is going to whisper, they are a lot worse. They are a lot worse than you are. I would never fill in the blank. I could never fill in the blank. And we can think that we're a lot better. And this happens because it's easy for us to minimize our faults and our offenses and forget that we have offended a holy God. And I'm afraid that we can be so forgetful in this area that, that, that you can forget how vast and how serious and how infinite your sins are against a holy God. Because when you, 
when you see the character of God and how we have offended him with our sins and our stench and our selfishness and our anger, then we'll be much more merciful and that we can put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. When we remember that the very things that we do and we have done to offend a holy God were the very things that moved him to have compassion on us, then as a result, we will be moved to have compassion on other people. In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? And in his mind, he throws out what he thinks is a big number because he wants to impress Jesus. He says, seven times? And at this point, I don't know what's running through Peter's mind, but he's probably thinking, that's pretty good. I probably aced that. I probably got an A+. But Jesus answers, 70 times 7. If you can do your math, that's 490 times. And Jesus is telling Peter he's got it all wrong, and he's not getting the point because Jesus is painting this picture of a forgiving heart that goes way beyond, far beyond keeping track of numbers and offenses. And then Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who settles accounts with his servants. And one servant owes the king 10,000 talents. That's, in today's money, tens of billions of dollars. That's Bill Gates' kind of money. And if you work a middle-class job, you'd be working 200,000 years to pay off that kind of debt. Okay? So, obviously, he couldn't pay that off. And so, the king ordered that this servant, along with his whole family, be sold and part of the debt repaid. And the servant is distraught, and he falls on his knees, and he begs the king, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. If we take a step back, that doesn't seem to make much sense. I mean, does this guy think he's going to live 200,000 years so he can pay back the king this, you know, tens of billions of dollars of debt? Well, the king knows it's impossible, but out of his pity, out of his compassion, he forgives this that the first servant owes him. And let's imagine what this would have meant to the king. The king absorbed the entire cost of that debt himself. He forgave that debt. He canceled everything that was owed. But not too long after this servant had that debt canceled, he goes out and he finds one of his fellow servants who owes him 100 denarii. And that would be about $20,000. And he grabs the second servant, begins to choke him and say, says to him, pay what you owe. Now, $20,000 is a, is a chunk of change. It's not, it's not pocket money. And someone who owed you or owed me $20,000, I mean, it probably wouldn't be easy just to write that off. But that servant, the second servant, pleads with the first one and says, have patience and I will pay you everything. Sadly, though, that first servant refuses, and he takes that second servant and puts him in prison. The word reaches the king as to what happened. And so the king summons the first servant, and this is is how it goes down. Then his master summoned him and said to him, the first servant, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant 
as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the point? What's the point Jesus is trying to make? Church, you and I are that first servant. We've been forgiven this $20 billion debt we could never repay, an impossible debt. And that debt is our sin against a holy God. Our sins are that serious. Our crimes against a holy God are that severe. And our offenses against the king are that wicked, so terrible, so wicked, that the punishment for our sin is eternity in hell. And it has to be eternity because we could never, ever pay it off. Someone who offends us, who sins against us, who hurts us, that's the second servant. Now, $20,000, as we looked at, that's, that's not chump change, okay? We, I, and, I, and I don't want to downplay the sins of others when, when other people sin against you. There's some serious things that people do against one another in this world. I don't want to downplay any of that. But whatever sins someone has committed against you is nothing compared to your sins against a holy God. $20,000 is a lot, but it's nothing compared to $20 billion. And sins against us are serious, but they're nothing compared to our sins against a holy God. And if we truly understand and truly grasp the debt that God has forgiven us, we can't help but to forgive other people. Now, we don't know why the first servant acted the way he did. Maybe he forgot that his impossible debt was forgiven. Maybe he just forgot, walked out of there, forgot what had happened. Maybe he thought it was too good to be true. Yeah, the king said he would forgive that $20 billion debt, but I don't really believe him, so I need to go squeeze everything I can out of this other guy. But in either case, the the, the servant, he doesn't live like he's been forgiven. If he had truly understood that he was forgiven, he would have quickly forgiven that second servant. And this is a point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Look with me to chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Church, if... God has forgiven you, you must forgive other people. Each one of us, if we've trusted in Christ, we've been given a new DNA. We've been forgiven, we've been pardoned, we've been freed. And forgiven and pardoned and free people can't help but to forgive and pardon and release other people. And that's what we see in the Lord's Prayer. We see that God's forgiveness toward us is tied to, it's directly connected to, it's inseparable from our forgiveness toward other people. The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who sins against us. Ken Sandy puts it this way, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, therefore we should be the most forgiving people in the world. And what does it look like for us 
for Risen Hope, for us as a church to be the most forgiving people in the world. Well, whenever we're offended, whenever we're hurt, whenever we're sinned against, we really have two pathways, two options that lay before us. And the first one is the pathway of unforgiveness. Ken Sandy describes different ways that we make people pay, ways that we make people pay what they owe. We can withhold forgiveness. We can dwell on the past. We can dwell on those past offenses. We can give people the silent treatment. Or even worse, we can just give up on the relationship, inflict emotional pain, gossip about it behind their back, or even inflict our own revenge. And it might feel good at the time. It might feel like a feast, but we're only feasting on ourselves. Someone once said, unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping others will die. And if you continue down that path of unforgiveness, you show that you don't really understand. You, don't, you haven't really experienced God's forgiveness towards you. And eventually God will turn you over to those jailers because of your unforgiveness. But there is another way, another path, a way to live out our new identity, our new DNA. And that's the path of forgiving as God has forgiven us. And forgive doesn't mean forgive and forget. When someone offends me, I'm not just going to walk out of there and forget about it. And the more I try to forget it, the more I think about it, the more I dwell on it. And we know that God, who knows everything, he can't forget. No, church, forgiveness is a choice. God says, I will forgive your iniquities and remember your sins no more. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And Sandy unpacks what this looks like for us to make a conscious choice to forgive other people. When we forgive other people, we choose not to dwell on the past. When we forgive, we choose not to bring it up as a weapon. And when we forgive, we choose not to talk about it with other people. We choose not to let it hinder or destroy the relationship. And in, and in complete contrast, we choose rather to pray for the other person, to serve the other person, to think well of the other person. At this point, maybe some of you have some questions that are racing through your minds. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, what about the consequences? When someone does something so terrible, so sinful, aren't there consequences that need to be paid? Does forgiveness erase those consequences? Well, we don't have to remove consequences in order to forgive somebody else. Often it's good for someone to experience the consequences of their actions because they can learn and grow from them. If someone breaks the law, there might be a fine that has to be paid. There might be jail time that has to be served. And justice is a good thing. But as Brian Chappell writes, but we're not permitted to desire the ultimate harm of the offender. The gospel always provides hope, always seeks restoration. Even when the criminal is sentenced and we properly rejoice to see justice done, The Christian also desires to see the offender recognize the sin, repent, and know spiritual restoration. And 
And friends, that's, that's really the heart of forgiveness, that we want others to experience that spiritual restoration that Christ has so freely given to each one of us. The Emmanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, suffered a terrible tragedy a year ago. On the evening of June 17, 2015, Dylan Roof entered this historic black church and pretended to be part of the meeting. And in the middle of the prayer meeting, he got up and murdered nine church members, including the pastor. And he shot and and killed in cold blood these Christians, these people at a church, because he was motivated by hate, and he wanted to start a race war. At the court hearing for Dylan, uh, the relatives, the relatives who had murdered family members had the chance to, to talk, to, to interact with Dylan. And maybe you saw this, which was so powerful. Uh, one relative who was choking back tears told Dylan, I will never talk to her again, I will never talk to her, hold her again, but I forgive you. Another, I forgive you, my family forgives you. Use this opportunity to repent, to confess. And again, every fiber in my body hurts. It will never be the same. Yet God have mercy on your soul. See, these church members didn't wait until Dylan Roof felt sorry. They didn't wait until he was a believer. They followed in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who when he was being crucified, prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Church, we have this new DNA the spiritual DNA, where we are forgiven and loved. And we see that because our God, our Father, He made the first move in sending our Son, His Son. Another question people often have is, what if they do it again? What if they do it again? Can I really forgive them if if they're going to do that same thing to me again? Well, we know that God didn't say, I'll forgive you if you never sin that way again. And we see that the unlimited grace of God, that that he forgave us as we begged him. So let us remember the past. Let's remember how God forgave our many sins. And this is what Paul does. He remembers the past. He remembers that at one time, he was a a blasphemer, a persecutor, a God-hater. But then he writes, I received mercy. And the grace of God overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And every Christian has experienced that same infinite mercy that the Apostle Paul experienced. And that changes you. And that's what we see the Emmanuel AME church members do. They can't help but forgive because they've been forgiven, even though I'm sure it was hard. So in light of this infinite mercy, Paul calls us not only to forgive as God has forgiven us, but to imitate God in every single way. We have this new DNA. We are a new creation, a new person in Christ, and there's a new way of living. Look with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
During the first century, there were many Greek and Roman teachers that would tell their followers to imitate God because their God had their standard of morals. But there's no example of a God who lovingly sacrificed for the sake of his own people. And we see that Christianity is unlike any other religion. All religions are like a high jump competition. Some of them set the bar too low and then you end up being very proud. Some religions set that bar, that high jump bar too high and then you end up in despair. I can never reach that. But Christianity says neither of those things. Christianity comes to each one of us and says, you are dead in trespasses and sins. And last I checked, dead people don't participate in high jump competitions. Dead people need resurrection. They need to be recreated. And that's what Christ secured for us at great cost to himself. Christ gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. He died so we could live. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. And it took a bruised and bloodied and crushed Savior to redeem us from sin and the consequences of that sin, which is eternal death. Today, though, it's popular to think of God as only a God of love. That God is this mix between a a therapist and a Santa Claus. He's there when you need him and he's there to give you some good stuff because you deserve it. God is a God of love and he's a God of wrath and anger because he loves what is good and hates what is evil. He hates injustice. He hates sin and must punish it. And the only way this loving God could punish sin without destroying each one of us was provide a sacrifice for us. A sacrifice for us. And this is what we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when the people of God wanted to approach the tabernacle, the the tent of meeting, the place where God made his presence known, they were greeted by a giant bronze altar. Now this altar is an eight foot square and it's five foot high. You wouldn't be able to miss it. And it would remind the people of God as they came near that they would never be able to approach empty-handed. That, that you, as, a, as, a, as part of God's people, would have to bring an offering, an offering that would be burned up. Something had to die and be sacrificed. And it was only through this offering and sacrifice that a, someone could approach God. And when the aroma of that offering, when the aroma of that death rises up to God from the altar, then and only then would God accept a worshiper. And the worshiper could draw near to the presence of God and receive blessing and life and joy. But we know that these sacrifices were incomplete. You know, God accepted these sacrifices as payment for sin, but he also said that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So for thousands of years, God's people offered these sacrifices and and offerings in anticipation of a final sacrifice that would remove sin forever. And that would finally come when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, that once-for-all sacrifice that would put away sin. Jesus was born, he lived, and he died on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And as he died, he was this sweet aroma, this perfect sacrifice that rose up to God that would allow us as the people people of God to draw near to God. 
Jesus died so that we could live. He paid that ransom so we could go free. And he suffered under the wrath and judgment of God so that we could be forgiven and accepted. And it was all done because of his great love. 1 John chapter 4 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is simply a word that describes a sacrifice, an offering that turns away God's wrath because of our sin towards God's favor and acceptance. A sacrifice that turns wrath into acceptance. And it was all done because of his love. He sent his son so that we might live through him. While we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. And beloved, if God so loved us, so loved us, loved us like that, we ought to love one another. And so we walk a life of love and we reflect the love of God. Because those who have experienced God's forgiveness and love can't help but to forgive and love other people. It's who we are. It's what we do. We know that children resemble their parents. I've been told Timothy, our three-year-old, looks like me, and Hudson, our one-year-old, looks like Teresa. And that's because we share the same DNA. There are children, and we are their parents. And in the same way, we share the same spiritual DNA of God himself as his beloved children. We resemble our Heavenly Father, who is the God of love. 1 Corinthians 13 defines what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. We're not going to have time to walk through all of that right now unless you wanted to stay until 1 o'clock or something like that. But we'll make you do that. But I will say that everything we see about love, we see in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we want to understand this love, we only have to look to Jesus. We only have to look to how Jesus is patient with us. Jesus is kind with us. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. He is not proud. And in his death and resurrection, we have been recreated in him, and we've been added to his new messianic kingdom. And the people of this kingdom are people who have been forgiven and loved. And there are people who forgive as God has forgiven us and love as God has loved us. And this is really the gospel embodied. We might not always have opportunities to preach the gospel with our words, but there is some sense where we preach and explain and shine a spotlight on the gospel through our deeds, through our actions, through our choice to forgive, through our choice to love. I want to close with a, another example of forgiving love because, because these examples stir our faith and they call us to follow in the footsteps of our Lord. Gladys Steins and her husband were missionaries. In January 23rd, 1999, everything would change for them. Her husband and two sons were sleeping in a a car in eastern India, in a remote village. They had been serving for 34 years as missionaries to lepers in India. But that night, 
militant Hindus set the car on fire and prevented Steins from getting out and prevented rescuers from helping them. She said, when I learned that my family was dead, I told my daughter, we'll forgive them, won't we? And the daughter said, yes, mommy, we will. And Gladys said, forgiveness brings healing. It allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. If I have something against you and I forgive you, the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. And the way she responded to this tragedy testified to the love and grace and forgiveness of Christ. And it was used by the Lord. After word got out that Gladys forgave those who had murdered her family, the world's attention was turned to the plight of persecuted Christians. The world's attention was turned to the militancy of certain Hindu groups and the plight of these lepers they were trying to help. Now, if she had responded in, she could have responded in, in bitterness. She could have responded in anger and unforgiveness. And many people probably would have thought that that was right. That would be right because especially if they had been spending years serving and helping these people. But that bitterness would have ended her gospel witness. And that bitterness would have gone directly against her spiritual DNA, the fact that she's a new creation in Christ. And when she chose to love and forgive those people in the face of such hatred, it caused the light of the gospel to shine and stand out so much more. After the tragedy, a man received a tract. And he asked, is this the same Jesus that Gladys Steins believes in? Yes. And then he said, I want to know that Jesus. Church, may the forgiving love of God in us flow out of us so that others can experience that same forgiving love. Let's pray.